All right, I'm going to ask you right away to do something this morning. If you could take out a pen and piece of paper, I have three, three things for you to write down. Are you ready? Only three. Okay. The first is July the 6th. Sunday, July the 6th is number one. Number two is 1030. And number three is feast. Yeah. Interesting combination. Let me connect the dots. We, uh, around 2007, we started this process to ask how could we update and improve our facilities. And we're about 95% done. And uh, it's been a collaborative effort with many of you a part of the planning and execution of the whole deal. And... And they're just about finished. And on July the 6th, we are going to all meet together as a church body in one service. So there will not be a 9.30, there will not be an 11.15. There will be a 10.30 service on Sunday, July the 6th. We're going to all be together. We'll use this space here, obviously, to, 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 to for seating. And uh, it'll be a little bit of a shorter service. We're going to have our kids with us. We'll have some child care, but it'll be more limited than usual. And when we're done, we're going to feast together and eat together. So we'll give you lots more details coming up. But I uh, want to get out that initial date right now, July 6th, one service, 1030. Uh, it's going to be lots of great food, lots of great storytelling as we celebrate. Uh, and also begin to ask the question, Lord, boy, we, we, uh, we look forward to what you want to do in the future here. We want to continue to make a dent and to be... Uh, corporate witness in our city here as God has led in the past. And so we want to try to hear his heart on those things again as well. Okay. All right. Open your Bibles to John chapter three. We are in the midst of a series of messages. We are walking through the gospel of John. If you are here for the first time this morning, our approach is fairly simple. We uh, believe that what we have here is a reliable record of the words of Jesus. And we open up this book and uh, every week try to uh, understand as plainly as we can, as simply as we can, what he's saying and how that applies to our lives. That's what we're trying to, to do. And so this morning we are on verse 16 and we'll read through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works 
have been carried out in God. This is, this is God's work. Well, this passage comes after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about the need for a spiritual rebirth. The main message to Nicodemus was this rebirth is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Then the next section opens up with the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. It is often called the gospel in a nutshell because it powerfully summarizes the Christian faith. One of our pastors in training, Pete Kresge, some time ago spent an entire Sunday morning camped on just this single verse. Now, John 3.16 has slipped. I shouldn't say slipped. It's been ushered into our, for better or worse, into our popular culture. So that if you say John 3.16, almost everyone knows what you're referring to, or at least has some vague idea. Some of you are too young to remember this, but the person who very much popularized it was a man who in the 80s found himself at every major sporting event. You might remember the Rainbow Man. By the way, if you read the rest of his story, it's not pretty, unfortunately. It's not a pretty, it's not a, it's not a, a pretty end of the story. How many of you have ever had a hamburger from In-N-Out Burger? If you've been on the West Coast, you probably have. They're delicious. They print on the bottom rim of their paper cups. John 3.16. Clothing chain, Forever 21, prints it on the bottom of their shopping bags. John 3.16 has been a song title for a, a variety of musical artists. Some have parodied the phrase for less than noble purposes, i.e. Stone Cold Austin. And then perhaps most famously, Heisman winning quarterback Tim Tebow printed this reference on his eye black during the 2009 uh, BCS championship game. No, that was not Ohio State. Exactly to the day, three years later, he led the Denver Broncos to a, a surprising playoff win in the game that would become known as, guess what? The 316 game, where Tebow threw for 316 yards. Now, popular culture aside, several questions emerge from this passage with relevance for us today. I'd like to take a few minutes to cover them. Number one, what does it mean to love? Number two, what does it mean to believe? And then finally, how does all of that change us? Let's, let's pause and invite the Father by His Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Father, we don't need to invite you here. You have invited us here. And we thank you for your incredible love and grace that would send your only son what mattered to you most, that we might have life. This morning, Father, open up our eyes to see and to understand maybe something we've never understood before. Father, give us some new insight about yourself that would 
open up a whole new way of understanding, a whole new horizon of opportunities of what we understand when we say life is in you. Move us, inspire us. Through Christ we pray. His atoning sacrifice, which opens the door of life to us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Okay, you ready? Let's go to that first question. What does it mean to love? And let's go ahead, Josh. Just throw that verse up there now, John three sixteen. Thank you. God loved the world. How? By giving. What did he give? God gave us the one thing that mattered to him the most. His son. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There was nothing else he could have given that said more emphatically, I love you. The emphasis from the way the Greek sentence here is constructed emphasizes the intensity, the intensity of his love. It's not a passive thing. It's not a intellectual thing. It's an intense, intense love. Such love is astonishing. Why? Because the world he gave his son to is not very lovable. It was and it is a world filled with broken, messy, and self-centered people who put in the right circumstances can do terrible things to one another. It would be one thing to say, I love you to a smart witty, attractive, energetic person. What do you mean when you say, I love you, to a person like that? You might be saying, you're fun to be around. You might be saying, I'm attracted to you romantically. Or you might be saying, I feel something, I feel alive when I'm around you. But what does it mean when we say, I love you, to a person that does not fit our normal categories of lovable. When the person drains us. When their needs suffocate us. When giving to them brings no tangible reward. These unlovable qualities are the object of God's love. You know, if we are to become Christ's followers, we have to accept that in God's eyes, we are not in that former group. Though many of us think we are. That's the lovable group. We have to accept that we're in that latter group. We are, in God's view, we are the unlovable. You know, that's the hardest thing about becoming a Christian. It is the hardest thing. You have to recognize a truth that is disguised by our culture. Our culture is bent on the values of strength, of perfection, of independence. But the truth that we must accept before we come to Christ is this. You're weak. You're in poverty. You're spiritually and morally powerless on your own. You're not the master of your own destiny. You are finite. The Bible says plainly, For all have sinned and fall short of the infinite worth and beauty of God. 
All of us contribute to this messy, self-centered, broken, evil world. It's not just a problem out there. It is a problem in here. To this unlovable world of which we are all flag-waving citizens, God gave his one and only son. And in that act of God coming for us, we clearly see the nature of love. Love always costs a price. For someone hurting and broken to be lifted up, it requires someone else to reach down to them, substituting their life in exchange. That's the first thing we see about this thing called love. Secondly, from John 3.16, we see that God's giving of Jesus was the greatest possible benefit to others. What does God give? Think about the gift he gives. He gives eternal life. Eternal life is a quality of life that cannot be measured. It is the new wine of the new promise we discussed two weeks ago. When we bring Christ into the center of our lives, we step into that eternal life, not just only in the future, but now, and we taste it. In the future, we will experience it abundantly. Our deepest longings and desires will be filled to the brim with this new life. Not only is it the greatest possible benefit, but look at the verse. Who did he die for? It has the widest possible reach. Jesus died for the world. Everyone is invited to the table. Now look at verse, skip down with me. Look at verse 18. I want to just make a little bit of a parenthetical comment here. Let me leave this narrative for a moment, defining what belief or what love means. There's a little bit of an issue here that we have to just address for a moment. If you look down at verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. My, that sounds awfully exclusive, doesn't it? And this particular verse flies into the face of cultural pluralism. Cultural pluralism holds deeply to the belief that no one religion is superior to another. This idea was just very embryonic, just very beginning around the turn of the century, the early part of the, of the 1900s. But now, some 100 years later, it is a firmly held belief by most people. And yet here Jesus is saying that this gift is exclusive. It only comes from him. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that this gift is exclusive? Well, the short answer is yes. Now, it's also radically inclusive. It is open to all. But not to disappoint you after I've whetted your appetite, to the challenges of being exclusive, we're going to have to hold off our answer to that for another day and another sermon or perhaps another series of sermons. If we're going to address that topic in a thorough way, 
It's a very important topic. And I can only say today that it is an issue that we must work through, you must work through, since it's so it's held to be such of a such a core belief by many. You've got to work through that. But I will say this there are defensible reasons, there are reasonable reasons why Christians hold this view that Christ is the only way to heaven. And they are defensible reasons, and they uh, do not assume that we are arrogant or have to be arrogant in holding them. But again, we'll have to look at that more deeply in another day. So we've said that this gift comes from great benefit. This gift is um, uh, given to the widest possible measure, uh, that it costs something, and finally, this gift is free. This gift is free. It cannot be bought, earned, or deserved. Look what D.A. Carson said. I like the way he said this. What Jesus wants us to do is not impress him, try to gain his attention, or pay for our own sins. What he wants us to do is trust him. This gift does not come by feverishly trying to outrun our personal and moral deficiencies. We simply receive it by faith. So here now we have a working definition of love. Love grounded in the truth of how God loves us. Love always costs something great. It is aimed for the benefit of others to as many as possible. And it is free. It is free. I'd like to give you just a couple examples of this from Tim Keller. And Tim Keller makes the great point that love always requires a substitution. Love always requires a substitution. Now think about this for a moment. As a parent, if you want to raise your children with freedom and independence, what must you do? Parents, you know the answer. If you want to raise kids with freedom, with uh, healthy independence, you have to give up your own freedom and independence, don't you? If you are emotionally detached or if you are overly controlling, if you insist on your independence, they will be emotionally dependent and damaged. It's them or you. Another example. If you offer sanctuary to a fugitive who's being pursued by authorities, such as Corey Ten Boom did for Jews during the Second World War, You cannot give them safety and security without what? Without losing your own safety and security. Again, it's them or you. And finally, there is no way to love an emotionally vulnerable or broken person and remain fully intact yourself, is there? You know, I look across this audience and I see some of you who are doing this very thing. You are loving, emotionally vulnerable, and broken people, and you realize you can't remain fully intact yourself. If you truly engage with them, you're going to suffer some measure of emotional vulnerability and brokenness. Jesus said this, I think about this kind of area, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who have the capacity to come alongside of those that are broken those that are vulnerable, and to mourn with them, for they shall be comforted. Again, it's them 
or it's you. This is how Christ loved us. This is the nature of a substitutionary atonement. Here is where we find the strength. Looking at Jesus is where we find the strength to begin to love like that. So secondly, if that's love, our second question, what does belief look like? Again, look at verse 18. We've already actually shared that verse as far as what belief looks like. Verse 18 is simply expanding on the previous verse, verse 16 and 17, um, and is seeking to answer this question, why do some perish? If Jesus came to save, if Jesus is looking to save, why do some still perish? What the writer says here is that Jesus did not come into a morally neutral playing field. You see what he said there in verse 18? He says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's an interesting thing. It's not a spiritually neutral environment that he comes to. Even before he enters, our heart condition is not well. It has been marred. It has been tainted because of the same me-first, self-first ethic that we described a little bit earlier. And so John uses legal language saying, we are already condemned. A guilty verdict hangs over us. So with that moral condition in view, there is not a third option available to us. There is not one we can contrive on our own. There are really only two. Believe and be freed from the guilty verdict or reject and perish. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Some versions say this is the verdict. The light has come into the world. Now here again, as Nick shared last week, we find John using the metaphor of light, darkness, day and night. And if you look at uh, John 1, I think it's verse 4 or verse 5, verse 4. It says, in him was the life and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 in chapter 1 says the same thing. And then actually in 1 John 1, 5, same book, I'm sorry, same author, different book. He says a very similar thing. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. What he is saying is that Jesus Christ is the source of of light, And just like the morning sun illumines and reveals, it makes simple and plain and clear. So the light of Christ reveals all that is true, all that is just, all that is beautiful. It reveals all that is good or evil, all that is common or sublime. It reveals how we ought to live. It tells us the plain truth about God and the plain truth about ourselves. And here's a staggering conclusion that John is arriving at. If we love the truth, if we are a people that love truth, we will be inescapably drawn, irresistibly drawn to Jesus if we love what is true. Now, we're trying to answer this question, what does it mean to believe? And now in the following verses, Jesus is going to dig deeper into the human heart for the source 
of that unbelief. Look at verse 20. Why do some make this decision? Because people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, this is incredibly insightful. One's decision to believe or not believe is not about primarily intellectual commitments. It goes deeper. It is primarily about our heart commitments. The things are the people to whom we give ultimate value. To who or what do you give ultimate loyalty? It might be gaining status. It might be gaining wealth. It might be winning the approval of your peers. It might be a certain person. It might be sex. It might be a party-first lifestyle. A heart commitment of this magnitude is something or someone we desperately hang on to at all costs. And if I lose it or if I lose them, I completely, absolutely fall apart. Whether we believe or reject Jesus has less to do with what knowledge we possess and is more about the condition of our heart and our ultimate commitments. Now, in the 19th century, particularly the 1800s, um, Orthodox Christianity took some major, major hits. And they came from people like Nietzsche and like Freud and like Marx and the, the uh, impact of those and some others like them have completely reshaped the way uh, 21st century people think. There's just no understating that. Completely reshaped the way 21st century people think. And they had very specific accusations about Christians and about Christianity. And largely their critique goes something like this, summarized by R.C. Sproul. They saw religion, or what they, what they set forth, is that religion is an attractive intoxicant for the depressed, the downhearted, and the weak. Overpowered by the harsh realities of life, people turn to religion for comfort and for emotional support. So in other words, people don't come to Jesus because they see truth in objectivity or because they believe it's true, they come because they have this great, overwhelming, psychological, emotional need. Now, is there some truth? Is there some truth in this? I'm not asking, is it completely true? I'm asking, is there some truth in this? Well, I'd have to say, after years of observing spiritual formation in others and helping people, I have to say, yeah. There is some truth in this. But for a moment, let me look at the other side and try to level the playing field here. For those who do not believe, for the atheist or agnostic, the person who is in the unbelief here, are they completely objective? 
Are they free from bias? Are they free from psychological reasons for not believing? Absolutely not. There are strong psychological reasons not to believe in God. For God, in his holiness, in his omniscience, is a direct threat to our insistence on being completely free. Our insistence on being totally autonomous, totally independent. If there is a God, that is a direct threat to our desire to be completely free of any moral constraint. I like an article I found by a a person named Jim Spiegel from Christianity Today. It's entitled Unreasonable Doubts. And he mentioned, uh, he quoted two very famous philosophers, one an atheist, one a former atheist. The first one is a guy named Thomas Nagel. Uh, Again, if you were in that world of philosophy, he is a prominent, prominent individual. He recently was uh, helped, uh, uh, wrote the introduction to a text called, What Does It All Mean? This is what he wrote in that introduction to that book. He writes, I want atheism to be true. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Okay, that's not a commitment based on intellect. That is a commitment based on an emotional, psychological need to be an autonomous person. The other story is from Mortimer Adler. Some of you may have heard of Mortimer Adler. Very famous uh, ethics philosopher, uh, an atheist for many years. And if you've read his book, Rearview Mirror, he tells a story of his conversion and his quiet baptism at the age of 81. And in that story, Rearview Mirror, he confesses uh, as to the reasons that he rejected religious commitment for most of his life. He wrote this, I rejected it because it would require a radical change in my way of life. A basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as the ultimate objectives to be sought and hoped for. The simple the truth of the matter is I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Again, not a matter of objectivity, but a matter of the heart commitment. There is a reason, Jesus is saying, there is a reason why people do not believe and it does not relate primarily to intellectual reasons. It relates primarily to ultimate heart commitments. Now, let's wrap this up. Verse 21, at least this section. Verse 21 Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here is how belief takes hold in a person's life. Remember, we're answering the question, what does it mean to believe? Light brings truth. And the person who believes responds to the light and pushes towards that light. They place Christ at the center and the pieces of their lives orbit around him. 
Second thing, believers continue to welcome that light into their lives. And thirdly, this is the most important distinction, believers recognize that the power to live in such a way only comes from God. This is how John Piper said it. That is, he, the believer, comes with a profound sense of God-dependent humility that every good thing he does, he is able to do only in God. So in these last few verses, what has Jesus done here? He has diagnosed the condition of unbelief. If we do not believe, where does the fault lie? The fault lies in our own hearts. If we do believe, it is a gift of God. And then there's good works. Good works erupt from a regenerated heart that has embraced and accepted an astonishing love. And again, an astonishing love given at great cost for our benefit, absolutely free. So, let's look at this next slide, Josh. How does belief then move through this passage? Look at the, look at the words that are used. To believe is to love the light, is to come to the truth. And then there are works done through the power of God. To not believe is to love the darkness, to fear exposure, and then to produce something that, because there's separation from God, it is destructive, it's evil. Self-destructive or destructive to others. Now, I know that it's moving laterally from one thing to the next, but I don't think Jesus is so much describing a progression, but rather I think he's describing the same thing using different words. I think he's defining and broadening out for us what it means to believe and what it means to not believe. Whether we believe or reject, it comes down to our heart commitments. Who or what we love. So, wrapping up this section, what does it mean to believe? To believe is a firm reliance on Jesus that continually moves towards him. And then it's confirmed. How do, we, how do we see this? How do we know? A person's faith is confirmed by God honoring works. If the trajectory of your life, not saying you're perfect, not saying it always goes well, not saying in any stretch of the imagination that you, you get it right all the time, but if the trajectory of your life is toward God honoring works, then that confirms belief. In the same way, if your life is not moving in a trajectory of God-honoring works, then it raises a question as to whether belief has truly settled in your own heart. Nick, come on up. The band can come on up. One of the ways, having talked about the nature of love and having talked about the nature of belief and faith, one of the ways that we recommit our lives to Jesus is by taking communion. And before we look at our final question, we do have one more question, just a few minutes, that we're going to look at after we, we take communion. We're going to stop here. We're going to pause. We're going to take the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. Because He loved, He gave His body. Because He loved, 
he gave his blood. Communion is an opportunity for you and me, for believers, to first lay hold of our forgiveness and then to recommit our lives by this morning moving towards that light, moving towards Jesus. Now, this is a sacred act. It's a holy act. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, our invitation to you is to observe closely, search your own heart, and this morning, open up to this, your heart to what are my sources of unbelief? Let this be a moment of reflection on the purpose of your life. Is it really going where you want it to go? Now, the ushers are going to release you here row by row. We're going to sing together. And I uh, just encourage you, feel free to take the bread and the cup uh, on your own at, uh, at any point during these next several songs. You all can start, Orlando. In communion, we are called to remember solely Him. His life and His work. And we primarily remember His life, His resurrection, and His enthronement as the King. But we begin by remembering Him in His crucifixion. He was despised and rejected. He bore our grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed, did not open his mouth. He was afflicted. We remember him in his resurrection. He was raised according to the scriptures on the third day, appeared to Peter and the twelve, and at one time, five hundred. He was presented alive with many convincing proofs. He was declared in power to be the Son of God. He was raised for our justification. And finally, we remember him in his ascension and his enthronement as king. He was made perfect through suffering. He was crowned with glory and honor. He was seated at the Father's right hand. He was made head over all things to the church. And He fills His body today with all of His fullness and extends His kingdom through you and me. We're going to sing together. We're going to take our offering together in just a moment. And as we continue to take communion, let me pray and thank the Lord for our response to Him today, the chance to respond to Him. Father, thank You for the opportunity to respond to You today. It's the bread and the juice and the giving of our offering to You, Father. Speak to us now. Settle, Father, Your Word in our hearts. Through Christ we pray. Go ahead and take a seat if you would. This final question now, how does all this change us? Besides teaching about the true nature of love and belief, this morning's message answers for us a critical question about our life purpose. Why should I give my life 
to an unlovable world? And the answer is simple, because God loves it. When we truly grasp our purpose in life, and when we love as the world as God loves it, and we realize that we have a messy and broken world that needs reached, and Jesus has commanded us to go into it and to it. And how do we go? We go the same way that God did, with love. It must cost us something. It must be beneficial toward others and as many as possible, and it must be absolutely free. Because of that reality, my life should remain an open door to God's leadings to do things I would not otherwise do. To sacrifice time, comfort, and resources. You think about it for a moment. Why would any of us walk across a room to tell the Jesus story to someone else? Because God loves the world. Why would anyone leave the comforts of home and travel to a third world country to ease the suffering of a person they've never met before? Because he loves the world. In a few weeks, we'll meet several dads that are dragging their children into a third world country filled with poverty and despair. Why would they do that? Because God loves the world. Why would you leave the relational comforts of your own life group? We have these uh, little home churches, little small groups all over the church. Why would anybody leave the comfort of that group and help birth a new one so that others could experience the blessing of community and the blessing of being enfolded into friendships? Why would anybody leave a secure one to start a new one? Because he loves the world. Why would you give up a quiet Sunday evening when you've already been to church, travel downtown and participate in the global day of prayer, praying for people that you'll never meet? Why would anybody do that? Why would that even be on your radar? Because he loves the world. With this new construction finished, why would you consider leaving the security of a church with a building and a full-time staff to be part of some new venture, a new church plant where you've got to get the chairs out every morning. You've got to do a lot of just hard work. Why would anybody ever be open to doing that? Because he loves the world. Why would you identify someone alone, someone in need who's hurting and begin to give yourself to that emotionally vulnerable and broken person knowing that your life will not stay fully intact? Why would you ever do that? Because he loves the world. This is the kind of love that you and I have been called to. And this is the kind of love and the kind of commitment and the kind of core that a small group of people have possessed in the life of this church for 40-some years and is what has allowed God to help this church make a difference in this city and around the world. And if we're going to continue... That legacy of being used by God for the next 40, again, it's going to take a core of people that love this world for this reason, because God loves it. Will you be one of them? I'm not asking you to raise your hand or write some commitment card or anything of that nature. 
just simply asking you in the quietness of your own heart, will you be one of those? Will you be one of them? That you'll unite with God. You'll unite your heart around His to be somebody on mission. Somebody that makes an eternal difference. Will you stand for final blessing? And again, if you're comfortable, raise your hands as to receive blessing from God. And I offer this prayer this morning. Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within, for we've been born again. Separate me from this world, Lord. Sanctify my life for you. Daily change me to your image. Help me to bear good fruit. Jesus, you're the one who sets my spirit free. Use me, Lord. Glorify your holy name through me. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'll be here after the service. If you're new this morning or have a prayer request, I'd love to meet you and uh, pray with you. I'll be right